I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and make, him, make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, the cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence bef before him. It's an interesting word, the word wait. If you think about it. Uh, when you're told by a parent, wait. That normally means you are, as a child, either in danger, right? <laughs> or you're in trouble. <laughs> One of those two things, right? Um, if you are in a waiting room of the doctor, then you are bored. <laughs> That's what the word 
kind of denotes to us. In Hamilton, if like Aaron Burr, in Hamilton you are lying in wait or someone is lying in wait for you, then you want to probably avoid that person, right? He doesn't have your best interest at heart. And in our modern usage, if you are told, wait for it, you know that you are being prepared for the punchline or the gag, and so you should get ready to laugh, right? It's an interesting word. In Habakkuk 2, we see the prophet waiting on God and being told by God to wait for it in verse 3. But when God tells the prophet to wait for it, he is not setting him up for the punchline or gag or something that is going to produce a good laugh. Not at all. You know, last week in chapter one, as we introduced the book of Habakkuk, we pointed out that it gives us a framework from which we can interact with fearful times. And these, these, these phases, we wonder, we wait, we worship, they, they, they correspond to the chapters. In chapter one, we wonder. In chapter two, we wait. In chapter three, we worship. These are not linear phases. These are things that actually can just happen cyclically. They go on all at the same time as we interact with challenging and fearful times. And last week, we dealt with this idea of wondering. In chapter one, Habakkuk is wondering, God, what is going on? Why won't you answer my prayers? Look at my society, Judah. We're supposed to be the people of God and we are filled with injustice and people are taking advantage of the poor. Violence is growing more and more common in our land. Vice and immorality is becoming more characteristic. All the spiritual reforms that were done by the good King Josiah have been undone by his son Jehoiakim. God, why won't you do something? We're supposed to be light in the darkness, but we're becoming darker. And he's crying out in these first four verses, that prophet cries out and, and then God answers him. He gives him a command. He says, look and see. Now, you're not going to like what I'm about to tell you, Habakkuk. Not only are you not going to understand it, I can guarantee you, you're not going to like it. Because I have been watching, and I have seen everything that is going on, and I am preparing the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. You've heard about them. They are a voracious people. They are coming. They will come, and they will destroy Judah just as the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom 130 years before. And you're going to be dispersed. And there's going to be agony and darkness. And, and this takes us to then the prophet really confused. I mean, the, the God's sovereignty often challenges us when he acts in fearful times or he acts in history or in our nation. And so the prophet is challenged by what he hears and he says, Ugh. Time out, Lord. Wait a second. You're the wise God of Israel, and this is your plan? Really? Okay. I mean, we have those really moments in our Christian walk, don't we? I don't understand this at all. And you see in the last six or seven verses from verses 12 to the end of the chapter where Habakkuk is going back and forth. He's, he's, he knows who God is and he understands that God loves his people and he's faithful and he's a covenant keeping God. But the Babylonians, I mean, God, we are bad, but have you checked out these people? They are so much worse than we are. You're gonna answer the violence of our 
nation with more violence? The darkness that is growing in our nation, you're going to bring more darkness? The injustice that's in our nation, you're going to answer that with a people who don't even understand the concept of justice. Are you going to destroy us? What is going on? I don't understand. We wonder. We wonder. That's where we're left at the end of chapter 1. Closes out with Habakkuk wrestling with God's sovereignty in light of, of what's going on in his country. So after this wrestling, the second complaint at the end of chapter 1, God does not immediately answer Habakkuk. We find instead that Habakkuk has to wait on God. And then when God does finally answer Habakkuk, he's told, wait for it, wait for it. We wonder, we wait. Chapter 2. By the end of chapter 2, Habakkuk will have no more complaints. He will not be lodging objections. He will not be asking questions and, and, and wrestling with God. Instead, he will understand an important truth. Because in chapter 2, God gives us this important reminder that he is faithful. Even in times where we wonder, even in times that are difficult and fearful, God is faithful and he calls on us to trust him, to be faithful even as we wait. Now, the, the chapter's a long one, and so I'm going to simplify it by just giving an outline that really consists of two points. For those of you who like to take notes, we're first of all this morning going to look at the how of waiting on God, and then secondly, we're going to look at the why of waiting on God. The how of waiting on God in the first three verses, it's pretty, pretty interesting what's happening here. You know, let me just say from the outset that wrapping and wrapping all of these phases of this framework is the word, I think, as we interact, honesty. How do we wonder about God honestly? We come to God honestly with our, our questions, our grief, our pain. This is what Habakkuk does in chapter 1. He's transparent and honest with God, and he comes to God, and he lays it at his feet. And he leaves it with God. And now he's waiting. And how do we wait? Honestly. Honestly. Not hypocritically. Last week we saw how foolish it was to wrestle with God from either a posture of false piety or from a posture of arrogant superiority. Either end of that spectrum is dishonest and it results in more pain. God wants us to interact with him absolutely from an honest perspective, an absolute honest perspective. Walking by faith doesn't mean that you automatically understand and delight and do cartwheels in the face of the pain and the fear and the chaos and whatever it is that is disrupting your life. Walking by faith does not mean that you will automatically understand everything. It doesn't automatically mean that you're just going to love everything that you experience. It doesn't mean that you won't have doubts and ask hard questions to the Lord. Asking hard questions to God instead of making rash judgments about God is actually a sign of healthy biblical faith. Okay? Honestly verbalizing in prayer our doubts 
to God instead of grumbling to others about God. This is an indication and a sign of healthy biblical faith. Church, I want you to hear this this morning. You can have doubts about God. You you may not understand. You may wonder. You may struggle. You may wrestle. But when we take these things to God in prayer and in honest conversation with him and honestly grapple and wrestle with him over these issues and ultimately, like Habakkuk, just leaving it with God until he decides to give us clarity, this is a sign of biblical faith of healthy faith. I I received this week actually an advanced copy of a book that's going to be released soon from another PCA pastor up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Pastor Travis Scott has written this great little book called Fearful Doubt. What a great title. Fearful Doubt. And in this book, he, he draws in one place from Dr. Oz Guinness. Uh, Dr. Oz Guinness has written many, many books. He's been a voice in evangelical Christianity now since the, uh, really the late 60s. He was an associate with Francis Schaeffer. He's written a lot of apologetic type books. How do we engage our society that is growing more and more skeptical? How do we deal with people's doubts? Uh, He's also written books for Christians that ironically, at least two or three, that deal with this question of faith and doubt. And one of his books, actually from, I think it was written in the 1970s, he writes these words. The world of Christian faith is not a fairy tale, make-believe world, question-free and problem-proof but a world where doubt is never far from faith's shoulder. Consequently, a healthy understanding of doubt should go hand in hand with a healthy understanding of faith. To insist that only doubt-free faith can be counted as genuine is to misunderstand what knowledge and faith are. The perfectionism in the demand, in other words, the demand to be doubt-free, that, that, that perfectionism and that demand is more destructive of genuine faith than the worst of doubts could ever be. Christian, you have questions about God. You wonder what is going on. You come to him and you honestly pour those questions out to God. Awesome. That's exactly what we're supposed to do. The how of waiting is to wait honestly to come before him transparently. In verse one, you also see we come obediently. How do we wait? We wait obediently. Now there's a question about verse one. Should we understand verse one literally or should we understand it spiritually? He says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. In other words, should, does this mean Habakkuk says, you know what? I don't know what's going to happen. I'm waiting on God. Therefore, I'm going to go take my place, uh, my duty station on the wall, on the towers, and man my post like every other person in Jerusalem is required to do when their number comes up. Because that's how you defended the cities back in those days. You had a duty. You may have a job, but you also took your turns on the walls. And, and so do we literally think that Habakkuk uh, went up on the wall and said, you know what, I don't know what God is going to do, so I'm just going to go up and take my duty station? Or is, it, is he speaking spiritually? I think at the very least, yes, he's speaking literally here, right? 
I'll stand at my watch and my station on the ramparts. In other words, he did not have clarity about all that God was going to do, but he at least knew what the next right thing was to do for him. And the next right thing for him to do was to go man his station and look out and perform his duties and his obligations to the people of God as both a citizen as the prophet of God. Church, we are in uncertain times. We don't necessarily know what all that God is up to and what he's doing, but we do know from his word, what are the next right things for us to do? While we wait, we obey. We do what we're doing here this morning. We gather together, we worship him. We live for his glory. We study his word, we read his word. It tells us how to live even when we don't have all the answers and even when we don't know all that God is doing and we are waiting on him. How do we wait? We wait obediently. We wait reflectively. I do think that verse one is literal. I also think it's spiritual. <laughs> I think if you, you, the New Living Translation catches this. He says, I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guard post. There, I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. And isn't it true that when you're confused and you don't have answers, sometimes you just need to get away from it all. You need to get away from all the chaos and you need to get away from all the, the noise. And you need to have silence and a time just to reflect and think. Baby, this is why I go fishing so much, just so you know. No, okay. But that is one thing I do on my boat, right? It gives me freedom from distractions and the ability to reflect what's happening in our church. What is God doing? What does God want us to do? And we do this in our lives. The, the watchtower here is an important word. You know, um, when you're at ground level, you can only see so much, right? But in the ancient world, they would build tall towers and they would post somebody up in that tower. Why? Because he would have a perspective that people on the ground did not have. He could see the surrounding countryside. He could have advanced notice that there were travelers coming to the gate, or maybe there was an army or there were bandits that were headed their way because his change in perspective allowed him to see things that he normally could not see. And this is one of these ways that we are to wait on God. Waiting encourages us to get away and to reflect and to gain perspective on ourselves and on our situation. We do this through continuing to engage with God, to, to worship him, to pray, to seek his face, to study his word, to think and to contemplate. You know, Job uh, did this. So we, we get a great example of somebody who he was obedient and he was reflective in the face of trials that he did not understand. He didn't know what was going to happen. And, and this is, uh, Job gives us a little snapshot of this time of reflection that he has. He says, behold, I go forward, but God is not there. I go backward, but I don't perceive him. On the left hand, when he's working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. In other words, God, where are you? I, I, I don't know what God is doing. I don't understand what's happening. I'm looking for God. I'm looking for answers. I'm waiting on these answers. I'm praying. I'm interacting with God. And so far, I, I don't know what's happening. But I do know one thing. He knows the way that I take. 
He knows what's going on in my life. He knows the direction that I should be going. He is ensuring that my life will be preserved for his honor and glory so that when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. We wait honestly and obediently and reflectively. We wait patiently. In verse three, when God says to Habakkuk, wait for it, that word wait, and most, in many translations just says, be patient. Be patient. Isn't that hard? I mean, how many times, parents, have we told our children, wait, and it's not the words of danger, or it's just saying, you need to be patient, right? Wait, not yet. And our children, what do they do? Man, sometimes they, they're just darlings. They, they wait patiently, right? That happens about once out of every 10 times. <laughs> Maybe better than that with some children. But what will they do? Man, will they throw a temper tantrum some? I mean, at the worst, they throw temper tantrums and they make a scene. Other times, maybe they just pout and it's clear. They let you know with an eye roll or with a facial expression. All right, I'll wait. I'm waiting on the outside, but inside, I am not waiting at all, right? That's what they do. Have you ever stopped to consider how often that is us towards our Heavenly Father? How often... The Heavenly Father must look at us and say, is this an adult, mature Christian, or a pouting five-year-old? How many times do we respond like that patiently? And then finally, I would suggest we wait with hope, hopefully. Listen to the words of verse 1. What's the tone of Habakkuk's words and his life in verse 1? As I read it, does it strike you that he's bitter? that he's pouting, that he's that five-year-old child throwing a temper tantrum at God? Or is it resentful? Or is it actually the response of a mature man of God who's waiting and reflecting and obeying and he's patient and he's filled with hope? Listen to the words. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me, and what answer I am to give to his complaint. What's the tone there? Is it pouting and resentfulness? He has made his complaint to God. The Babylonians, God, I don't get this at all. He takes this complaint, he lays it at the feet of God, and he leaves it there. And then he goes about his life doing and obeying and serving the Lord. And I think this is a message of absolute hope. I know that God is going to answer me. We know that we are trusting in God and walking by faith in fearful times when our posture is one of hopeful expectancy, even as we wait. That confidence in God that he's going to make sense of it all. Waiting and waiting, hopefully, is the testimony of Scripture. This is how the men and women of God that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 waited on God. And the psalmist, for example, says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Do you hear the hope in the voice of the psalmist as he says, Yes, we have to wait. How about the prophet Isaiah? I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. We wait. How do we wait? We wait honestly and obediently and reflectively and patiently and hopefully. This is what we see 
Habakkuk, in Habakkuk's life as he responds to this second complaint that he makes to God. How about the why? The why of waiting. Verses 4 to 20. In verses 4 to 20 is a detail. God gives Habakkuk a detailed answer to his complaint concerning the Babylonians. God tells Habakkuk to wait for it. But in his grace, he gives him and he gives us several reminders and motivators and gospel encouragement for while we wait. The first one is in verse 4. We wait on God, and why do we do this? Because we can trust in who he is and his character. Verse 4, see he's puffed up, his desires are not upright, and this phrase here is one of the most important phrases in the Old Testament, and it's quoted several times in the New. But the righteous will live by his faith. Now listen, we're going to do a whole sermon on that phrase. We're going to come back to verse 4 in a few weeks with Reformation Sunday when we celebrate the, the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation because this verse right here, that phrase right there changed Martin Luther's life. And it spawns the Protestant Reformation. So we're going to come back to it. But for now, let's simply understand that to live by faith is to trust in the infinitely trustworthy God. To live by faith is to trust in the infinitely trustworthy God. This is our challenge. In fearful times, our challenge is to not trust in ourselves. Our challenge in fearful times is to not trust in other saviors, whatever form they take. As Christians, to live by faith in fearful times is to trust in the absolute trustworthiness of God, to trust in who he is, to hope in him In this passage, he gives Habakkuk five reasons to trust in him. We call them the five woes. We're not going to go through every one of them and dissect them, but essentially what he says in these five woes, he says, you want to know why Babylon? How is this just? How is it right to bring in Babylon who's filled with injustice to, to correct the injustices in Judah? A violent land, Judah's going to become more violent by Babylon. You want to know what's going on? Let me assure you, Habakkuk, Babylon is not going to get away with this. They are my, my instruments, but the story that I'm going to weave through Babylon will astound you and it will astound the world. And these five woes to Babylon that he gives there is proving to Habakkuk that he's trustworthy. You know, God's people have always lived through fearful times. You know, I just think of our brothers and sisters around the world. Do you realize that in the last 20 years, every year we've seen around 100,000 martyrs for the faith? The things that are going on in Africa that just simply do not make the news are atrocious. The genocides that are occurring against Christians and other nations. And and we don't hear about this in the media, but it's real. Our brothers and sisters around the world, they live in fearful times. We live now in times that are much more uncertain than what they were even 12 months ago. And in all of these times, God says, trust me. Walk by faith. I promise you, I'm trustworthy. I will vindicate my name. I will vindicate my people just as I always have done. To the 
prophet Zephaniah, who was the, the um, peer of Habakkuk. He, he will say these words in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Why should we wait? Because our God is a perfect, holy God. He is just. Not one injustice will ever escape his sentence. Not one crime, not one violent act, not one horrendous, devastating event within human history will ever go unseen and unjudged. God will vindicate his name and the justice of his name. We wait on God. We trust in him because of who he is. Secondly, we wait on God because his kingdom plan, not our comfort, is what's most important. We want relief right away. We want our answers right away. We want things to go back to being good right away. Newsflash, God's primary concern is not our comfort. First and foremost, God's concern is his kingdom. And sometimes that means God's people have to be uncomfortable. In verse 12, he says, in the middle of one of these woes, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire? that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He says, my title is Lord Almighty. In many places in the Old Testament, that's translated the Lord of hosts. The general of the heaven's armies. Yes, Babylon has a voracious army that consumes the Assyrians and the Egyptians and Judah. But compared to God's army, I mean, that's like Grenada going against the United States back in the 80s. I mean, really? That was a war? No comparison. Humanity plots and indulges itself. Evil, horrendous events occur, but God assures us that the evil will not prevail and his kingdom will ultimately fill the earth. God's sovereignty, hear me, church, very clearly on this, God's sovereignty means that every evil thing, horrible thing, devastation, the disaster, the chaos, the pain that you experience because sin has entered into this world, all of it, from the moment of the garden to the time Jesus Christ returns, all of it, in some way, God is working through, permitting, and carrying out his good plan. In your pain, in your fear, the event that is causing you anxiety, the things that you see in society that maybe roll up these emotions and this worry, maybe even anger, God says, I'm in control. 
My kingdom will fill the earth and cover the sea. One of the reasons why we stress missions at this time of the year, at least once a year, and we, we come to you and we ask for you to dig deep and to give extra above your normal tithes and support of your church, to get involved with us as we plant churches around the world, is that we know this simple fact. God is going to fill the earth with his glory. And the way he fills the earth with his glory is for the name of Jesus to be spread across the planet as outposts of Jesus's kingdom are planted and established sometimes in the darkest countries, but from there light penetrates the darkness and the glory of our Lord spreads and it consumes the earth. And the reason we get involved in missions and we give and we send our young people and we send our resources to these other parts of the world instead of keeping it all for Palm Bay and Brevard County and Covenant Church is because God is spreading his glory across the world as Jesus makes all things new. The reason why we plant churches is because churches are the place where Jesus is magnified. And the good news of Jesus is proclaimed in the power of the Spirit. And wherever Jesus goes and spreads his influence and his name, the kingdom of God is established. Jesus is the glory of God, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is what God is doing I mean, think about it for a moment. Let's think about these empires that are here in Habakkuk, chapter one and two. There's the Assyrians. I mean, the Assyrians were just a bloodthirsty, horrible people. For 300 years, they're the dominant power in what we know as the, the ancient Mideast. And what did they bring to posterity on the stage of world history? Crucifixion. They're the ones who introduced crucifixion to the stage. They're a horrible people, a violent people. They destroy Israel and disperse them throughout the land, and God judges them, and he brings the Babylonians along to them. And when the Babylonians come, they take the people of Judah, and they establish them throughout their kingdom in major cities. And what do these faithful Jewish believers do? People like Daniel and Nehemiah and, and others, like, what did they do in these foreign cities? They gather the people together and they begin to worship God. They can't go to the temple, it's destroyed. But instead, they establish in every city these things called synagogues, right? And they're worshiping God. The Babylonian Empire continues. The Persians come along. God judges the Babylonians. The Persians bring his hand of judgment upon them. And what does the Persian Empire do? They bring the exiles, or at least some of the exiles, are allowed to come back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple in the city of Jerusalem and they prepare this, this city for when our Lord Jesus will come to this temple and begin his ministry. The Greeks destroy the Persians. I mean, how does that happen? An army of 30,000 Greeks will, will engage in battle sometimes five and six times their size and they're victorious and ultimately under the leadership of Alexander, they will rule even a greater portion of the known world. They will establish a common language that is spoken 
over thousands of miles, what is known as Koine Greek, the language that the New Testament is written in, but they too will not stand. The Romans come. They destroy the, the Greek empire. They bring about peace. They establish roads. They connect the entire known world through a transportation system like nothing that had ever been seen. So here now we have the ancient world that has been connected through transportation, has a common language, and the Romans, well, they bring in that practice of the Assyrians, crucifixion for their criminals. And the prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament being hung from a tree are fulfilled to this empire, and then his followers are able to travel throughout the empire, proclaim the good news of Jesus in a language that most people will understand. And what do they do? They go to big cities, and they enter into those synagogues that were started during the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles had entered into the culture of the Jewish world. And these apostles will go into these synagogues and there they will preach the gospel. They'll find some Jews who believe, but more importantly, they find God-fearing Gentiles who think like Westerners and the Greeks and they rationalize and they reason and they have this language and they hear Paul speaking to them in a way that they understand. And it's these God-fearing Gentiles primarily who believe this message being proclaimed in the synagogues and they become the foundation of the church in Corinth and Ephesus in Rome and Thessalonica and throughout the known world. And from there, Christianity and the kingdom of God spreads across the face of the earth. Don't tell me that God is not sovereign over everything that happens in this world. Every empire that comes and falls is simply carrying out in some way or another God's plan for his kingdom. Why do we wait? We wait on God because we can trust him, because we know that he's carrying out this kingdom plan to spread his glory upon the earth. And finally, we wait on God because his timing is always perfect. At the beginning and end of God's answer, he reminds us of his timing. He says in verse three, the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay because the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Church, it is hard to wait on God. We often don't understand why he does what he does or why he does it when he does it. But God motivates us to wait by declaring that he is always absolutely on time. He is going to act for the glory of his name and for the good of his people, you and me. He is going to act. His actions will be absolutely right and in line with his character. And his actions will not be one second too early or one second too late. They will be perfectly on time. As we move to the Lord's table this morning, we see and we're reminded of this aspect of God's perfect timing that always comes for the benefit of his kingdom and for his people. In the Old Testament, a story that we're going to look at in a few months when we get to Abraham and Sarah, 
We read this, Sarah conceived. Remember, they're old and they've been promised a child and year after year, decade after decade, there's no pregnancy. Finally, when she's absurdly old, Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the what? Appointed time. Right on time from which God had spoken to him. The ancients of old have experienced God's perfect timing. God's perfect timing has been favored upon us. We read in the book of Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Look across this church this morning. I know that there are all kinds of folks who are suffering, but we are his children. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. He prompts us during times of not understanding to call out to him, Abba, Father, Daddy, what is happening? Why? And we can do this. Because at the appointed time, God sent his son Jesus so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, but now we are God's own children. Since we're his children, we're his heirs. And so when you consider what you're struggling with this morning, the hurts that you have in some of you, you are carrying incredible hurts. And way beyond the inconveniences of COVID and what's happened in our world, you're carrying that prayer in your heart, God, would you please bring my children to faith? And you've been praying it year after year after year. Lord, would you do this work in my husband's or my wife's life? Our marriage is in trouble. God, would you heal our marriage? And you pray it over and over and you wait for this answer. You're pressed down with grief as you've experienced the sting of death close to you. And we wonder, God, what are you doing? We ask for relief. We ask for deliverance and vindication, yet God makes us wait. And the temptation is for us to complain about God during these seasons of waiting. But this simply takes us down a road where we experience even more pain and more confusion. It's so much better that we complain to God than about God. It is so much better for us to wrestle with God and to talk with God and to talk to God than to run from God and to rebel against him and to pout like a child who doesn't like to be told to wait. Why is this the case? Well, the table reminds us. The table reminds us that at the perfect time, he sent Jesus to redeem us, to turn us from slaves to children. The table reminds us that at the perfect time, he is going to act again. At the perfect time, he is going to gather us in eternity to celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. At the perfect time, he is going to once and for all destroy sin and death and the devil and all that makes this world miserable. And it will happen at exactly, exactly the right time. Not one second too soon, 
not one second too late. This table points to that day. This table points to the spiritual reality that at our deepest time of need, Jesus stands ready to feed us, to strengthen us, that we can eat upon him, dine upon him, and find the sustenance and the strength that we need to wait honestly and obediently and patiently and hopefully.